With that, we'll jump into the Word. Lord, please bless this time as we jump into your Word. Let my words be your words and let us grow in knowledge and in truth. We love you, Jesus. Amen. We're going to continue on in the book of Revelation. Revelation means an unveiling. There were things that were hidden that are now understood. And so Jesus is giving John this message for the church, and specifically he's giving him letters for seven local churches that are right around that area, but the message is for all the churches around there and throughout all time. Chapter 1 describes for us in detail this amazing vision of who Jesus is in his glorified state. It says things like he's got a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and his eyes are on fire and his feet are made out of bronze. Like this incredible vision of the glory of who Jesus is. And then in chapter 2, it begins to write these letters to the individual churches. I laughed this week, hopefully I don't embarrass him, but our very own Landon Fleming that was just up here, his parents asked him last week, how was church? And he said, Nick really likes the letters to the churches. I do really like the letters to the churches because it's for us, and that's amazing. And so we're going to continue on in that. First week of uh, the churches, we talk about Ephesus, a church that is doing all of the right things, but they've lost their motivation of love for God. Maybe you've been in a season of your life at some point where you feel like, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but I don't know why I'm doing it. I'm just kind of going about the, the moves, This is where Ephesus was. They're doing the right things, but just kind of because it's tradition, just because it's what you're supposed to do. And he says, I have that against you. Return to your first love. And then we talked about Smyrna, a church that is remaining faithful. And and he actually doesn't have anything bad to say, but he wants them to understand that he gets that they are enduring brutal poverty and ostracism from the world. They're going through an incredible time of persecution, and Jesus just wants them to know, I understand what you're going through, but remain faithful. Maybe that's a season of your life you went through where you are remaining faithful and just just feels like life is just punching you in the side of the head constantly. Has anybody ever gone through that kind of season, or are you better than me? Okay, yeah. And then we talked about Pergamum, another city where it's very difficult to live But Jesus understands it. In fact, he calls that place where Satan's throne is. Can you imagine living in a city where Jesus is just like, that's where Satan lives. Oh, maybe I should move. But he says, remain faithful even though you find yourself living amongst Satan's throne. And then today, we're going to jump into another letter to another church. And today we're going to talk about the church at Thyatira. In many ways, this church is very similar to Ephesus and Pergamum, but it has its own unique issues as well. Unlike the previous cities, Thyatira is a relatively small city. It's not one of those big places where there's giant temples dedicated to the false gods. It's kind of a small town. It doesn't have big libraries. It doesn't have high culture. In fact, it's the smallest city of the seven cities, But interestingly, it's the longest letter that is written to one of the seven cities. Thyatira is what we would call blue collar. It started out as a military outpost. It was to protect these other cities that we've been talking about. Those cities were on the coast, so they put military outposts a little bit inland to protect 
them. And so because of that, Thyatira has been destroyed and rebuilt multiple times. They don't have a natural defense like mountains or anything. It's flat land, so it comes, it gets destroyed, they rebuild it. And it's kind of grown from that culture of being blue-collar. And then finally, in 190 BC, it's conquered by Rome and turned into a Roman province. And it becomes a commercial trading post along the major north-south highway. So again, it's not a fancy place. It's blue-collar. It's, they have understood struggle. And most of the people that live there, the way that they make their money is that they are a part of guilds which is very much what we would call a a labor union. There's all these guilds that do different types of work. They have uh, wool guilds, linen guilds, guilds that make outer garments, guilds that work on leather, tanners, potters, bronze smiths. And most famously, if you study the history of Thyatira, they're known for their purple dye. That might sound weird, but purple was an incredibly difficult color to get in the ancient world. And so they would use their dyes that came from the murex snails. They would break up these snails. They'd get dye. It took, like I don't even know, a lot of snails to get like one ounce of purple dye. And they would make these purple dyes. And really only royalty or very, very rich people could afford what they call Tyrian purple. And this is one of their major uh, commercial enterprises there. And it was very highly sought after. And here's a weird connection. If you've been with us all the way back when we were in the book of Acts a long time ago, you might remember this connection that in Acts, Paul has a dream in Acts chapter 16 that a man from Macedonia asks him to come to Macedonia to help them. So he does. He wants to go up into Asia, but God prevents him from doing that. So he goes to Macedonia. And when he gets there, he does not meet a man from Macedonia. In fact, the only people he meets is a group of women that have gone out to the water to worship God. And when he meets them, there's only one that is named, and she is named Lydia. Acts 16.14 says, One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So This is who Lydia is. She is somebody who sells these purple goods, and apparently she's very successful at it because she has another place in Ephesus where she has gone to, to sell her goods. And so this is the connection, kind of connecting the whole New Testament, right? Acts all the way to Revelation. We have Lydia. We don't know where the church of Thyatira started. We don't know who planted it. And so many Bible scholars have thought maybe Lydia meets Paul He leads her to Christ. He baptizes her. Him and his whole crew of people stay with her for a little while. And then maybe after that, she goes back to Thyatira and plants this church that we're now talking about. We don't know for sure, but that's the idea. So let's read this section of Scripture, and then we'll unpack it. Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29, if you're following along. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your later works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching 
and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod and iron, as when the earth, earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. Right at the beginning of that section, it says something really interesting. And it's the only place in all of Revelation where it says this. Did you notice when it says, the Son of God? Jesus identifies himself in this letter, and only in this letter, as far as Revelation goes, as the Son of God. And I believe there's a specific reason for that. Even though Thyatira doesn't have giant temples dedicated to gods, even though it's not a religious center like the other cities, they do have a local god that they worship. and His name is Apollo. And Apollo was known as the god of the sun to them. And he's also known as the son of Zeus. So their local god is both the sun god and the son of God. For them. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God, it's a very intentional thing. He's saying, that's not the Son of God. I am the Son of God. I am the one whom you should be looking to for this authority. They worshipped Apollo as their patron saint. And if you were a part of one of those guilds, one of those labor unions, then they required you to worship Apollo. And if you refuse to do that, then you would be ostracized from the guild. And so if you refuse to be a part of that, it makes it incredibly difficult for you to make any money or just kind of exist in their culture. God understands that all this is going on, so he says, if you really want to understand who the Son of God is, it's me. Let my words ring true. And so he uses this term very intentionally. And then his description of himself that comes from chapter 1, continues, and he says that he has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Both of these things speak of Jesus as a judge and as somebody who has power and authority over all things. And it's interesting, Apollo was also known as the god of smelting bronze. And so I think it's another intentional thing. It says, you have Apollo who you think is the god of fire and bronze. And Jesus says, I am fire and bronze. I am God over everything. He says, I am. Verse 19 starts this commendation to the church of Thyatira. And it's really interesting because if you read this, it sounds great. Like it sounds like the kind of church that Paul would be really proud of, doesn't he? He says, I know your works. 
your love and your faith and your servant and your patient endurance, and that your later works exceed the first. The positive lists of Thyatira sound like exactly the kind of church that you would want to be. They have a foundation in love. They have an outpouring of that love and faith that turns into service and patient endurance. And on top of that, their works are just increasing. He says, you're not waning with time. You're not getting worse. You're getting better. I would read that and be like, sounds like we're doing pretty great. If Jesus said that about Alliance Fellowship, I would be like, sweet. That's amazing. He says, but, verse 20, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. There is seemingly within this church a woman who has become a person of major influence. And she is teaching and leading some of the believers into false lies and teachings. She calls herself a prophetess. That means she's going around telling everyone, everything I say is from God himself. Right? And she's lying. Just because somebody claims spiritual authority does not mean that they have spiritual authority. This is a side note, but you need to understand this. Just because somebody comes to you and says, I am a prophet of God, you need to test that against the Word of God. And if it does not line up, they are a false prophet. And in the Old Testament, if you're a false prophet, you get stoned to death. It was a very serious thing. She's going around saying, I have the words of God, but she doesn't. She's lying. And people do this all the time. This would happen, this is kind of in a funny way, but I went to a private Christian college. And one of the lines that guys like to use is, God has spoken to me, and you're my wife. I heard this many times. False prophet, right? Even funnier to me is I had another friend, a friend named Charles, and Charles was a great guy. Everyone loved Charles. And a girl used that line on him. She said, Charles, and he was dating somebody else. That's the best part. He's got a girlfriend. Girl B comes to him and says, Charles, the Lord has spoken to me. You're wasting your time with her. I am your wife. And Charles was very nice. He did not crush this poor girl. But later, Charles came to me and our friends, and he said, I can't stand her. That is not the word of God. And it wasn't. She was using this spiritual trump card. And this is what people do in not just a funny way, but in a real way. People will come to you and say, well, God said this. How do you argue with that? Unless you just say, liar. Right? It is difficult to have a discussion with somebody who just says, well, God told me. Did he? I'll tell you as a pastor myself, if somebody comes to me and they say, God told me, if the next words out of their mouth aren't scripture, I'm out. If the next words they say are not directly quoted from scripture, I'm out. If they say, I feel like God, okay, that's fine. We can have that discussion. But when you try to play that spiritual trump card and just tell me that you have the voice of God, that's a, that's a very dangerous route to go down. And this is what this woman is doing. She's telling them that she has the word of God. Now, this scripture calls her Jezebel. It's probably almost 100% sure not her real name, not this woman. Jezebel is a figure from the Old Testament. Maybe you've read that story. 
In 1 Kings 16 through 19, you can jot that down if you want to read the story of Old Testament Jezebel later. We don't have time to get into all of it. But Jezebel was an evil and vile woman who became the queen of Israel. King Ahab married her, and she brought Israel into a time of worshiping false gods, Baal and Asherah. She was an autocrat that doomed much of Israel in her time, and eventually her sinful ways led her to a gruesome death, being eaten by dogs, you can read about in 2 Kings. But she had lied to people, and she's telling them that she has the words of God, and she's misleading them. And this New Testament, Jezebel is doing the same thing. And if you remember the last couple weeks we've been talking about, what she's teaching is actually very similar to the teaching of Balaam that we talked about, or the ways of the Nicolaitans that we talked about last week. She's teaching them that they can go ahead and continue to worship the pagan gods and continue to participate in the, in the feasts that are dedicated to these false gods and continue to participate in the sexual immorality that is a part of the worship of these pagan gods. She says, you know what? God spoke to me, and it's okay. Keep doing those things, and you can worship the Lord also at the same time. She says, not a big deal. She says, God's grace will cover all of it. No big deal. You just, you just do whatever you need to do to fit into society. And go ahead and worship Jesus too. Those things, she would say, can coexist in our lives. What she's teaching is what we today call syncretism. The idea that you can just kind of buffet your spirituality. You can kind of say, well, I like that part of Christianity, and I like this part of Buddhism, and I like this part of this, and this part of this, and I'm just going to be a spiritual person. But throughout the entire Bible, this is one of the main points of this. Throughout the entire Bible, don't miss this, God has clearly commanded in the Ten Commandments, do not have any other gods but me. And throughout the entire Old Testament, God very clearly makes a connection between worshiping false gods and adultery. Throughout the Bible, God and Jesus refer to the church or his people as his bride. And when you are the bride and you step out on your husband and start to worship other gods, you are committing spiritual adultery. So there's this double. In Thyatira, they're, they're literally committing physical adultery as they participate in these services, but they are also committing spiritual adultery against God, their one true God. God literally, if you've ever read the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, the whole book, that's what it's about that Israel has begun to commit adultery against God by worshiping false gods. And this is exactly what Jezebel is encouraging Thyatira to do. In the church, this is the problem. He says, you are tolerating her within your own ranks. Even the people who have not fallen into her lies are just kind of saying, well, we don't want to rock the boat. We're just going to tolerate her. She can do what she does. We'll stay over here. And Jesus says, you're tolerating someone who is destroying your brothers and sisters. Who is leading them to the path of destruction. And in verse 21 through 23, Jesus tells us exactly what he's going to do about it. He says, I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her 
I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all of the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. It's incredibly harsh words. Jesus says he's given her occasion to repent. I trust that means he has given her opportunities. He has probably sent people to her to say, you need to stop this, and she has refused again and again to stop doing what she's doing. He wants her to repent. Jesus is not willing that anybody should perish. He wants everybody to come to repentance. He tells that in 2 Peter 3.9. But he's given her that opportunity and she has refused. So he says, I will throw her into a sick bed, which actually means her deathbed. And she will die. And that might sound harsh, but should the Lord allow somebody to continue to destroy his children, would you? If somebody came into your life and they were literally bringing your children down a path to destruction, would you just sit back and say, okay? Or would you step in and do something about it? And Jesus says, I am not going to allow this woman to continue to destroy my children. And he says he's going to throw those who are committing adultery with her, the ones who will not repent, he's going to throw them into great tribulation unless they repent. This is an interesting idea to me. Because this means that sometimes the Lord does cause tribulation in our lives. This is a very interesting idea because I think there's two sides to this. A lot of times people think every time anything bad happens, they're like, oh, the Lord's doing this. And then there's other people who say, oh, God would never do that. I think something in the middle, there are times when God will cause tribulation. But only for a reason. Only because you need to adjust yourself. You need to get back to him. He doesn't throw tribulation on us for no reason. And sometimes bad things just happen because we live in a broken world full of sinful people. I say all the time, sometimes when people say everything happens for a reason, I say, yeah, sometimes the reason is people suck. That's it. But sometimes, God will put tribulation in your life in order to discipline you back to him. And that's what he's doing here. And in the case of Jezebel, if you are somebody who is leading his children astray, then you should fear the wrath of God. Because he will not abide that. And the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that it would be better for you to have a millstone put around your neck and thrown into the sea than to be somebody who is causing his children to stumble. And then verse 23, he says, he will strike her children dead. We don't know exactly what this means. It could be the people who refuse to repent and they continue to, to follow her false teachings, or some Bible scholars think that it's speaking of maybe there were some daughter churches that launched out of this. She's in Thyatira. Maybe some churches planted, some house churches planted that were saying, yeah, we like this idea. Let's just continue this. He says, I'm going to kill those churches. Like those are going to cease to exist. But either way, the Lord is serious about putting an end to this false teaching because it is destroying his children and he wants the churches. Notice he says, the churches will see. Not just church. Not just talking about Thyatira. Now he's talking about all of them. The churches will see that I am the one who searches your hearts and minds. 
And that he, with his vision of blazing fire and his feet of bronze justice, will treat people accordingly. Then verse 24 through 29 comes back around to these other people. Right? There's all these other people in Thyatira who have not given in to this, but they're still tolerating it. This is who he's talking to, but he's, he still gives them a word of comfort. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not place on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what I have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule with them with a rod of iron as authority from the Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's an interesting line in there. Did you see that line, the deep things of Satan? Makes me think of uh, Narnia. When, when Aslan says, do not quote the, the deep thing, the, the old magic to me, I was there when it was written. It's kind of this language of like the deeper spiritual things. And, and what Bible scholars think that this is probably talking about is that Jezebel is probably going around telling people, and, and you'll run into this in your life, She's going around telling people, like, I have the word of God, and I know the deep things of God. I know the things that are hidden from other people. The things that were not revealed in these letters. I, I know the deep things of God. And so when Jesus speaks about that, he, he twists it and he says, yeah, more like the deep things of Satan. He's making that connection. Like, no, this is not the deep things of God. This is following the enemy. If anyone ever tries, this is another side note, back to this thing. If anyone ever tries to convince you that they have a word from God that is over and above the word of God, flee. Run from them. Especially if what they're telling you doesn't line up with the word of God. If they're telling you something that is against the word of God and they say, well, God has revealed this to me, you need to run as fast as possible away from those people. Because they are part of the deep things of Satan. He says to these people, even in the midst of the fact that they're tolerating sin, he still says, I do not lay on you any other burden because they're remaining faithful. He's saying you need, you need to get rid of this woman who's lying. But, but to you, I don't lay any other burden. These are people that are known for their faith, their love, their service and their endurance, they're doing well themselves. The Lord is pleased with them. And then he says something interesting. He says, only hold fast to what you have until I come. He says, hold fast. That is language that you use if there's going to be struggle. Somebody is swinging on a rope. You say, hold tight. Hold fast. He's letting them know there will be struggle. There will be times of of pain, but hold fast to the truth. And then he says, until I come. This is interesting because it's the first time in the book of Revelation that it mentions this idea that's going to become a major theme, that Jesus is coming back for his church. We're not going to dive into this day because it's a whole thing on its own. But this is the first time in Revelation that, that Jesus says, I'm coming back for you. He says, hold fast until I get there. 
Worship team, you guys can head back up. The last few verses of this section go back to this model that's been a part of every section that we had in, in these letters. It says, To those who are conquerors and overcomers, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule with them with a rod of iron. And these speak of the church, of those who are faithful. We will be allowed to rule with Christ over his new creation, over the new heavens and the new earth. This is taken from Psalm 2. He's saying you will get to be a part of the new creation if you hold fast, if you stay faithful. And he says, and I will give him the morning star. This is speaking of Jesus himself. Later in Revelation 22, Jesus refers to himself as, I am the root and the descendants of David, the bright morning star. Those who are faithful and endure and are conquerors and overcomers, Jesus says, I am your inheritance. I will give you myself and it will be like the morning star. It will be a new morning, a new beginning, a new creation. What an amazing idea to think about today. That there will come a day where we will be with Jesus and all of the pain and sorrow and sickness and all of the things of this world will melt away. We will be a part of his new heavens and his new earth and everything will be set right again how it was meant to be. And there will be no more sin or sickness or death. What an amazing day that's going to be. As a church, Jesus looks at us too. And I think there's a lot of amazing things going on in this church. And I'm racking my brain. Ron Udarian asked me this week, he said, which church do you think we are? I don't know yet. But I'm praying about that. Because if there's something that Jesus would say to us, like, hey, I know your works, but I have this against you. I, I want to know what that is. I want to know how we become more and more devoted to Christ. So that we can reach Bozeman and Gallatin County for, for Jesus and, and, and more people will know him and love him. It's why we're here. And I want to have open hands as a church because it's really scary to say, Jesus, what's wrong with us? That's real scary. But I want to have open hands and say, God, how, how can we grow to be more of what you would want us to be? Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray scary prayers for ourselves and for our church. God, we want to be who you have called us to be as individuals, as families, as a church. Help us to know where we're doing well. Help us to see our strengths so that we can lean into those strengths and continue to do those things. But God, also reveal to us what you would hold against us because we do not want to sin against you, Lord. Would you help us to know? And would you help us to be faithful and to seek you to grow, to be more the men and women that you have created us to be? In Jesus' name we pray.